Anthony DeComo reporting live from home now. But how was St. Lucie? How how is it going with the, the pandemic and being able to cover this team in the way that you do? Yeah, it's uh, you know St. Lucie is always is always a good time. You get down there, and it is the cliche, but it is so true that it's spring training. It's it's born anew. It's a great uh, just a restart to the year. And this year was definitely a unique one, given all the circumstances surrounding the pandemic. Uh, I know that had a lot of implication on on prospects. There were 75 guys in camp, which is an insane number. Uh, certainly some guys who would not otherwise have been in big league camp. So it was a cool experience to see that. And um, just to get started with baseball again, you know, people people rallied around it so much last summer. And it's going to be so much more of the same this year. How odd was it? Um, and you know, part of what I think makes spring training so interesting is the access that uh, fans get. That uh, the up close and personal. You know, you can be ten feet away from Jacob Degrom throwing a, a, a side session and a bullpen session, whatever. Uh, how odd was it? Just the way things were set up this year in terms of the limited access that you, as a media member, get, and then also just you know the, the fans not being around as much you know you're used to the first day of workouts when there's thousands of people and you know guys come out like it's a, a high school football game and everybody's cheering for them when they take the field for the first time so how odd was it just to have a pandemic related spring training yeah especially in a year like this for the Mets and what I mean by that is you could always kind of gauge how good the team is or how much excitement is around the team by how many fans were out there that first day of pitchers and catchers and if they were coming off a big year, like coming off the World Series year of 2015, for example, those backfields would be swamped and there would be people everywhere and they'd be out there bright and early and they'd be having a great time. And then some of the leaner years, maybe not so much. There would always be fans out there, but you wouldn't get the, quite that same buzz. But this year, going into 2021, had there been fans around, I can assure you it would have been very much that that first vibe where you've got people who are just going crazy and are totally, totally into it, totally excited. So... It was weird. It was a little jarring that every morning is just quiet and there's no one around and there's players quietly getting their work in and you can hear every word that's being said on the field. It's it's a little bizarre. It's a little strange. It takes some getting used to, uh, you know, from my perspective as a media member, you know, the, the big thing about the pandemic is that there's no open clubhouse uh, and totally understood from a health and safety standpoint. But you know, that is what makes baseball writing so great. And I think better than the other sports is that we do in normal years have such great clubhouse access, have such great access to the players, get to know them on a deeper level, get to build and write better stories because of it. So uh, missing that, you kind of have to find other ways. Uh, you kind of have to maybe be a little more observant on the things that you're watching because you can't, uh, you don't have as many opportunities to dig in and ask those questions um, but all that being said, the Mets did a great job, I thought, with providing us, uh, you know, access within what they could do with the health and safety protocols. We were able to see relatively up close what was going on in the backfields. We were able to see relatively up close when guys were throwing their bullpen sessions, which is no small thing, especially this year with so many new players in camp. So many guys, you know, I personally had never laid eyes on before. Other other people around camp had never laid eyes on before. So, um, you, you know, it was different. It was weird. Uh, it was not ideal how you would want it 100%, but I think, you know, all things considered, um, you know, the team did a good job of of making it making it worthwhile for those of us who were down there in Port St. Lucie. So I just had uh, two other things sort of related to that. Can, can you give us sort of an idea of how 
um, it, it works in terms of the availability that you're getting. I know typically when you're down at spring training, you can sort of um, pick and choose who you want to talk to. You know, you can build a relationship with guys and then find stories out. But now in the, in the Zoom world, you're sort of being fed guys X, Y, and Z. Um, and then that's who you basically probably have to write about for, for a given day. So that's, that's one thing. And then the, the other part of it, you know, having a guy like Francisco Lindor, who's potentially going to be this cornerstone guy for the next, hopefully 10 years, whatever it is, uh, you know, hopefully the contract situation works itself out, but not being able to really build a relationship with a guy like that on a, on a face-to-face, uh, hand-to-hand combat kind of, kind of way. How, how difficult is that for you as well? Absolutely. It, it's it's definitely difficult because, you know, as a beat writer, one of the things that you want to do and that you work to achieve using that open clubhouse I was talking about is A, to build relationships and then B, to parlay those relationships into interesting stories, unique stories that other people on the beat don't have. So when we're all getting the same three players on Zoom every day, that's very difficult to do. Um, you know, there are ways to combat that. One is to kind of use those relationships that I've already built in the past and and get things on the side and, and do things that way. But you can't abuse that, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's it's a lot easier to just walk up to a guy in the clubhouse and say, hey, do you have a minute, versus either coordinate a one-on-one with a player on the side, uh, through the PR staff, through however whatever means you might do, there's just so many more layers to it. It's so much more difficult than literally just walking up to someone and saying, Hey, you know, can we talk? So um, it takes some getting used to, I I think I'd be lying if I said the opportunity to create that same volume of quality, unique content is there this year versus where it had been in years past. But again, you find ways to get around it. You find unique angles. Um, You have to, I would say pay more attention, as I said before, to what's going on in front of you necessarily. Not that that's not always important. It is. Um, but when that's the bulk of your access, you know, you have to you have to take it as seriously as you possibly can. So um, strange year again, weird year, not ideal, but but you find ways around it. Yeah, you don't want to hijack this the entire Zoom call or try to write a feature story about somebody. Uh, that's that's never fun. Um, exactly. But but I will. And that was that was one other thing I wanted to say quickly. You talked about Lindor, and that was the part that I forgot of your question. Um, yeah, like I'm not the type of guy, for example, as a reporter who I need to ask a question in every scrum. If it's a group interview, I'm not that guy. But on the Zooms, when you're literally, this is your only FaceTime, I feel it is more important to ask questions and to just so that, you know, you do it for the 17th, the 18th time, maybe your name registers and you have a leg up once. Once Clubhouse does open and we get back to normalcy. So I, I have found that important and maybe something that I've changed a little bit uh, doing everything over Zoom. Prospect wise, you saw these these players up close and personal for a little while. Uh, what what were you struck by that maybe we wouldn't read, you know, if we're looking at their MILB profile or something like that? It was a really cool experience, uh, you know, for me watching the team because you look at the Mets prospects and specifically those top seven or eight guys who, you know, I would say are are a cut above and who, you know, have gotten the most ink written about them, who are the guys who come up in, you know, anytime there's trade rumors and things like that. Most of those guys I hadn't really laid eyes on all that much in the past. Uh, Roddy Mauricio, we had seen a bit of in Springs past, um, a smattering maybe of Mark Vientos here and there. But by and large, these are guys 
Francisco Alvarez, I had never really seen play. Uh, Pete Crow Armstrong, who just got drafted, I had obviously never seen play. Uh, Matt Allen, I had never seen pitch. So to see these guys, and not just see them in the flesh, but watch them in a pretty, you know, not small sample size of, of backfields, of Grapefruit League games, of really seeing what they had to offer, I thought was really cool. It's the type of thing that in a normal spring I always try to do. Um, you know, minor league camp starts a little later compared to big league camp, but they do run concurrently in normal years. So I would often sneak out to the backfields, you know, once or twice a week, see what's going on out there, watch the workouts, uh, just to lay eyes on some of these guys, maybe see them play batting, take batting practice. Um, But this was different. This was every day out there with the big leagues, out there with the big leaguers, every day in Grapefruit League games, locking significant innings in Grapefruit League games, a lot of times coming in the fourth, fifth inning and, and staying out there till the ninth. So, Really got a good look at some of these guys, and you can understand doing that why the Mets are excited again about about these top seven eight guys in their system. These are impact players. These are kind of the names that you can hang your hat on as uh, in terms of an improving system. Uh, these are the reasons why. And um, you know some interesting draft classes, particularly the past two years, 2019, 2020, and you know the players now having seen them in person, you can again you can understand why. So I've found it interesting that the draft strategy in the in the with Brody in the previous regime, and I think that's sort of why the the system is so top heavy. Uh, you know, with guys like Matt Allen getting overslot money and then drafting all seniors after that, and having the signability thing. But the thing that I've been most impressed with 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 the guys who you mentioned at the top of the, I guess the food chain in terms of prospects, um, they're all really young, but they're so mature. Like it's almost offensive to me like they're not 18 to 19 year old kids like we had Pete Crow Armstrong on on our show here um and when we were done I was thought I was talking to a guy that's been in the big leagues for 10 years and Matt Allen is is the same kind of way so not only are these dudes like physically like Ronnie Mauricio overnight look like he became a man and is like a superhero body now but these guys are just so polished and seem like they're already off the field ready uh in terms of getting ready for New York and, and the big leagues. Um, and just wanted to see if that was sort of your takeaway too. I mean, when you talk to Matt Allen on the zoom and Pete Crow Armstrong and Beatty and all these guys, um, they all seem like they're sort of a, ahead of their time a little bit in terms of their, uh, their polish. Absolutely. And there's two elements to that. One is physical, as you mentioned. And I think, um, you know, Matt Allen definitely stood out to me as terms of a guy who, who looks like a big leaguer. Um, Ronnie Mauricio, who you mentioned, you know, the first time I laid eyes on him, he looked like he was 120 pounds soaking wet. And now he looks like a dude out there. Um, <laughs> Mark Vientos, another guy I would throw in that category who really just looks physically like a big leaguer. Um, but I think the more impressive thing, because you expect that from guys uh, in every system, I think the more impressive thing is kind of the makeup and the off the field stuff and, um, you know, another guy you mentioned was Pete Crow Armstrong. And that that's a funny one because you look at him and he's still so young. He's 18 years old. And physically, he is not at that maturity level of a Mauricio or even a Vientos at this point. Um, and so you kind of expect the other stuff to be raw, too. And then he comes and he sits down at a zoo and he talks to you. And you, it feels like you're talking to a 35-year-old guy. The maturity level is just off the charts. Uh, Matt Allen is the same way, off the charts in terms of, uh, just the way he's able to express himself and, um, you know, you feel like you're talking to a big league veteran. So I think that's a really comfortable thing. 
if you're in the Mets organization, to have guys like that who, you know, you don't need to worry about their maturity levels, their, you know, how will they handle this as they start to experience success coming up the minor league ladder. I think guys like that tend to take to it a lot more easily. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a really interesting, really good group of guys. I, I think, uh, you know, Crow Armstrong, I'll bring him up again. He just really impressed me, you know, with with honestly just the one interview that he's, he did with us. But even on draft night, I remember when the Mets selected him back in um, – back in June, July, whenever it was, and really impressive from day one. Uh, reminded me a little bit of, of and I, I hate to invoke the name because it drives people crazy, but Jared Kellenick was the same way in that when he was drafted so, so young, comes in and yet from day one had that maturity level. Pico Armstrong is the same way in terms of that, not necessarily the same type of player, but um, but has that kind of it factor that I think could one day make him a real star in New York. Yeah, Jared, Jared is like a it's like a curse word now in the in the Mets family. But when he was in <laughs> exactly when he, when right, he was drafted, like he was like a baseball player built in a laboratory. Like his mom was like a sports psychologist and his dad is a nutritionist or something like that. So like when he was 18 years old, he was already nine steps ahead of everybody. And I think Pete is, is similar. But, but, but Pete Crow Armstrong has the little big league connection. So, right. you know, his mom being in that movie. So if you're going to build a baseball player in the laboratory, that's another way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked to, to Pete Crow Armstrong and I literally had just eaten a bowl of Lucky Charms as a 37-year-old man. And when we were done, I was like, I got to go read a book or something. <laughs> like This kid's 18 and uh, I'm in trouble. You're not the only person who's eaten Lucky Charms this week, I assure you. <laughs> same, same, it was St. Patrick's Day this week. How could you not? <laughs> So, Anthony, for the previous regime, like Billy talked about with Brody uh, and how they viewed the minor league system, I think everyone kind of realized they might have shipped out a little more talent than they brought in. Uh, do you think Sandy Alderson's first order of business is that quick replenishment uh, of the system in any way, shape, or form? I, I don't think Sandy Alderson needs to make quick replenishment of the of the system a priority necessarily. Obviously, that's something the Mets are going to want to do over time because there was – an exodus of talent under Brody Van Wagenen. Um, but for a couple of reasons, uh, I don't think it's it's necessarily priority number one. One is that the major league team right now is really, really good. So you don't necessarily need to have starting pieces come into your lineup or your rotation from the farm system right now. A year or two down the line, yes, especially on the pitching side, you're going to need to have guys come up and fill in if you want to build a sustainable winner. But they're not at the point where they're necessarily desperate to do that uh, especially on the offensive side you've got pieces more or less who are under team control for years to come so they can take their a little bit of time with that the other aspect to that is one of the things that I think Brody Van Wagenen has gotten quite a bit of credit for and we'll see how it bears out over time but as Billy mentioned earlier those really interesting aggressive draft strategies where they put all of their eggs in that basket early where they could get themselves a Matt Allen or a JT Ginn, whereas maybe had they just been drafting normally and slotting their money, you know, as it's recommended, they wouldn't have gotten multiple first round talents over that two year period. So you've got an Allen now in the system. You've got a Ginn in the system, in addition to Beatty, in addition to Crow Armstrong, in addition to the international guys who were already there, Mauricio Alvarez, et cetera. Um, so, Given that top of the system that's strong enough and guys who are starting to get old enough where you can see them in a Mets uniform and it's realistic in the next two, three years, uh, you can have a little more time to develop some of the guys who are younger who are under them. All that being said, there is a cognizance in the organization that they do need to build this thing out 
and they do need to do it the right way. You saw the trade for Khalil Lee. That was an indication of this Mets team wanting to, or this Mets organization wanting to get another high-profile prospect in there. Um, you know, obviously the 2021 draft is going to be huge for this team, and it wouldn't shock me to see them maybe go a little bit heavier on the college side on guys who can help sooner rather than later, because there is a lot, there are still a lot of young players in the system. Um, so to answer your question, it's a long way, but I think there is a cognizance that this needs to be done. The system needs to improve, but also it, you know, an acceptance that this is what it is right now. It's okay for our needs right now. And, you know, going forward in the short term, we're going to be all right with it, with those seven, eight guys that we have at the top who can help us along with, Obviously, some some lesser "quote unquote" prospects lower down in the system. So, outside of Clearly and Thomas Zipucky, if you look at like the top ten guys in the in the prospects, they're all lower level guys. Uh, you know, Alvarez hasn't played above Kingsport. Uh, you know, rookie ball. Um, Beatty and Allen were in Brooklyn the last time that they were playing games. Uh, Pete Crow Armstrong hasn't played at all. Vientos was. Uh, in Colombia. So do you think going into this year, you know, they may try to push some of these guys uh, and sort of count last year as time served and maybe have somebody start in double A without having played in high A, or um, do you think that they're still, you know, going to be patient enough to just let these guys follow the normal progression and and not necessarily uh, try to pump them up too quick? I think a little more of the latter and that's just more circumstance because of those guys that you mentioned, by and large, these are guys who were not knocking on the door of, of the upper minors yet. We're not really banging down the door and saying, I deserve to be playing at Binghamton right now. So I think you're going to see a lot of them start at Brooklyn, which I think you guys know is now high A. And, um, and yeah, see if they sink or swim. And if they, and if they swim, I think you'll see maybe some aggressive promotions, maybe some midseason promotions that would not have occurred in the past, things of that nature to push these guys along. Um, you know, obviously you'll have some of those younger guys starting at St. Lucie. Some of them will be at Brooklyn. Uh, but I think it's going to be as opposed to in years past where you might've saw, seen a little more of, okay, this guy's starting at St. Lucie. He's going to be in St. Lucie all year. This guy's starting in Brooklyn. He's going to be in Brooklyn all year. I think if a guy has a lot of early season success at one of these levels, there's going to be maybe less hesitation to push them along because of that lost year of development, because if they deserve that promotion, there's no reason not to give it to them now and maybe push them a little harder than you had in the past. The uh, starting in Brooklyn thing is exactly what we wanted to hear, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you. There will be some um, names in Brooklyn. I, I promise you that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would – I mean, I, I don't know uh, about all of them, obviously, but I, I would think, you know, Beatty and Allen seem like logical guys to, to probably at least start off here, and Mauricio and Vientos were up a little bit higher. And I'm going to be curious to see how they sort of – handle Vientos and, and Beatty, um, considering they're both third basemen, they're both similar in age, um, how they're going to handle them, whether they always have one uh, a level ahead of the other, or, you know, they're going to be at the same level and one DHs or one place first, you know, to try to get the versatility, which really seems to be uh, a cornerstone of what the, this new organization um, is, is looking to do. Um, but one more question for me, obviously we're talking about guys who are potentially down the road uh, faces of the franchise, but you have some very, uh, close contact, I guess, here with uh, the face of the franchise, at least in recent years, with your your book about uh, David Wright here that, that came out recently. It was a very, very enjoyable. Read it uh, over last summer when we had nothing else to do with baseball. So uh, I, I appreciated that. Um, 
So how difficult of a of a process was that for you? And how much, you know, this is this is a guy that is probably the most beloved person in in the organization um, since Tom Seaver on that same level, universally loved by everybody who's a Mets fan. And you're here chronicling his experience and his, and his life. You know, how, how daunting of a task was that? And what was that whole experience like for you? Yeah, it, it's funny you put it in that way, Billy, because that's what made it daunting and not that writing a book is ever going to be not that it's, it's a big project. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of hours. Sure. Uh, I could be writing a book on whatever and it would be daunting, but when you're putting it in someone else's words and when you're putting someone else's name on it, particularly someone, as you mentioned, as beloved as David Wright, there's that added layer of, I don't want to screw this up for me, but I don't want to screw this up for this guy because if people don't like this book, it's not just my name on the work. This is this is a group project. His name's on it too, and his name's a lot in a lot bigger font than mine. So, I, <laughs> I, you know, so it, it gives you an, an extra motivation to, um, you know, to make sure it's done right, to make sure you do it well, to make sure, you know, you're you're making the extra phone call or the extra twenty phone calls that you need to do to get it done. Um, the thing I've said is that. And and you know this, Billy. You you know David Wright is he is a a good dude, but b one of the most professional people you will come across. He would not have taken this project on if he was not willing to you know kind of give it his all and put everything that he needed to put into it. So whenever I needed anything, phone call whether that phone call was five minutes or an hour, um, you know, meeting up in person plenty of times before the pandemic hit. Uh, down to nitty gritty details of, you know, the, the publisher asking, you know, minute questions about things about the cover, things about the layout, things about this, things about that, you know, the editing process, all of it. He did so professionally. He never complained. He did everything that we, we needed him to do. Um, if he told me he was going to call me at 1030 a.m., I did not have to look at my watch at 1035 and wonder if he was going to call. He would call at 10030. You know, that's just the kind of guy that he is. So, you know, all, all of that made the process a lot easier and it made, you know, ease some of those worries of making sure that we'd be able to do it the right way. Um, I would recommend for anyone who's, you know, maybe looking to write a book, do it with David Wright because you'll 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 do it the right way. <laughs> Yeah, the, the book is called The Captain, a memoir. It's, uh, it's available anywhere you want to buy books now. But uh, this sort of just goes back to what we talked about earlier. And, you know, you having the ability to build a relationship with a guy like David Wright over the years where it gets to the point where, you know, he's comfortable enough with you where he turns over the keys to the story of his life. And um, I agree with you, you know, what you had said earlier and what I think the beauty of baseball is and the base, baseball writing um, is is the stories and the ability that you guys have to get um, close to these guys and and share these stories with the New York fans who are as hungry and uh, dedicated to these players as as anybody else. So that's the the thing that I miss the most about this new Zoom world is being able uh, to have guys like you um, tell us those stories and and tell the fans these stories because these guys are more than just the, the numbers on their baseball card. And we say that all the time on the show um, and not being able to tell those stories and build relationships like you have done with, with David, which uh, the book was incredible and uh, well done on that. So congratulations. David, that's not the product of covering him for a year. That's the product of covering him for a decade plus and getting to know him as a person um, building trust both ways. He trusts me. I trust him. 
And you can't do that without the type of access that we get as baseball writers. So I, I you know, people people like to not, you know, people like to roll their eyes and, and say it's grandstanding and say it's it's you know reporters complaining when you bring up the access conversation. But I think it's so important to provide the type of coverage that fans do like to read. And this book is one example of that, of, of many, many examples across the media landscape. So hopefully we can get that back real soon and we can start, you know, once again, providing that type of coverage in full once more. Yeah, baseball is every day. So you got to come up with something every day. So thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I know this is, uh, you're just getting back back home and settling in. So I appreciate you taking the time and getting ready for opening day. So best of luck the rest of the way. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at the ballpark soon. Yeah, thanks, Billy. Thanks, Keith. And uh, uh, it should be a fun summer at Brooklyn, I think, with a lot of those prospects coming up. Coming up. So good luck to both of you.